we really do have an advantage of, with the little kids, that, and they don't have the same expectations as adults do about tone and sound. And we've heard it at Sock Perlman, and like, oh my goodness, and we can't we can't sound like that. You know, they're not thinking on those terms yet. So we got we got to get them involved in a method that allows them to become little musicians and little artists. And it's not just about technique; it's that too. But we want we want to teach good technique and good posture, but it's about being um, uh, little musicians and being creative, and having fun and the joy, finding the joy through music. And uh, children know how to be joyful, and we should allow that to happen in the lesson plan. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh, and in part two of our Mark O'Connor podcast, Mark returns to the story of his mother and how she supported him in his artistic endeavors, despite suffering for many years from ill health. The story is followed by one of Mark's most beloved compositions, titled Appalachian Waltz. He performs the piece with viola player Carol Cook and cellist Natalie Haas. About your mom, tell me what happened when she was passing away. Well, it was truly the the most awful time in my history. My my mother was the closest to me because she was not only uh, my nurturer and and caregiver, but she believed in me. Not many of my family members did, you know, maybe my dad a little bit because of the money I could make, but but my mother cared about me as a person. And so to see her slowly die right there in front of me with that much pain, you know, and this was at the time where she couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't afford yeah, medical stuff. She would go without painkillers a lot. Explain what was going on. No, she was. Um, she had cancer everywhere by this time. And this you know, is when. Yeah, this is uh, in the 1970s. And you are how old? So I'm. A, I'm. A, I mean, she basically had cancer my entire childhood, but it got really bad during my teen years, and so. When I was age 14, her cancer was so bad that it was the last time she could drive me anyplace, uh, out of state at least. I mean, she, she could still manage to drive me down to, to see Benny. But that was the last time she was able to drive out of state. And uh, so if I was going to enter a major competition, say the Grand Masters in Nashville, I would have to get there on my own. So she, starting at age, even at age 12, she would put me on the plane by myself. So I hear this, you know, little kid was on planes going around the country. She couldn't see a reason to stop my progress just because she was had cancer. And she oftentimes didn't know exactly who was going to pick me up on the other side. She would try to arrange things, but you know, things can change and somebody else picks me up, you know, and all of a sudden I'm staying at this house and not this house. And that was happening a lot. So, but we thought that the music community was my best bet. 
and people would look after me. Several people wanted to adopt me. Matter of fact, Norman Blake wanted to adopt me when I was 14, Norman and Nancy. And uh, sometimes I wish I could have been in a, in a situation to, to, to have done that. You know, what a, a different life uh, that would have been than the, at, at least at home, than the one I was up growing up in. But um, so when she finally succumbed, uh, it was um, the worst days. I was depressed for probably a year, and and once again, music brought me back in. The last time she saw me play was at a contest. It was at the uh, the uh, World Champion Mandolin Competition in Kerrville, Texas. That was the last time. And at that point, I was driving, and she was in back in in the back of the van in her bed, could barely move. You know, I had to I had to carry her to the bathroom and things like that. But it was uh, a trip that we thought we should take with her. Uh, she was in such low spirits. So my sister and I drove her uh, around the, the few places. We went to Texas. And she um, she saw me enter this mandolin contest. And I had a chance to win. I mean, I was I had done some practicing. And I had just gotten a couple of lessons from Jethro Burns. And he, he taught me a couple of jazz standards for the mandolin and then I had a really good rendition of uh, the classical Russian rag worked up and I had a bluegrass tune all ready to go and uh, I thought I had a good chance and and I played really well I was just around uh, 19 and um, I had already won the the national fiddle championships and the national guitar championships so if I could pull this off this would be kind of history making. No one's ever been able to do that. And um, I got up uh, on stage. They were going to announce the the award winners. And when they got to about when they started uh, listing the top five, and my na- name wasn't called. I was in the top five. Didn't know what my placement was yet. They called the fifth place. I, it wasn't me. And all of a sudden, I looked down in the front row. There's my mother. I'm in the front row staring up at me smiling and um we had left her in the van we got permission to park the van at the top of this ravine it was an outdoor setting and it was a rough natural ravine in texas there was some kind of bleacher or bench seating but the pathways down was very rocky and uneven uneven ground and uh, we had left her in um the, the van at the top of the ravine with the back doors open so she could see the stage. And my sister was there. That was, the, that was just us, you know, just my sister. At this point, she was about 16, and I was 19, and my mother. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking down the front row. There she is in the front row looking up at me, smiling. And I'm thinking, and I'm mouthing to her like, you know, where's Michelle? Where's my sister? Because I'm thinking, where, where is she? Like, she should be right there by her. Someone must have carried her down or something, and maybe a, a kind, you know, fellow or something carried her down. But I couldn't see anybody near her, and I kept saying, well, how did you get there? And they were announcing the awards while I was trying to mouth these words to her in the front row, and she was just, she just kept smiling. And they got to third place or something, and then second, 
And I couldn't even, I didn't even know. And all of a sudden, I guess I won because people were looking at me and uh, plotting. And I had just completely tuned them out, trying to figure out how my mom got down there, like I was seeing a ghost. And it was, it was, uh, gives me chill bumps to even talk about it now. And I wasn't sure if I was seeing things correctly. I, I didn't know what happened because there's, it would be impossible. I, she, uh, she was completely, um, she couldn't walk. I mean, she, she was uh, almost broken in half. All her ribs were cracked from cancer and she had already broken her hip. You know, uh, there was a steel rod holding what was left of her hip. Um, you know, someone must have carried her. So I couldn't wait to get off the stage with my, I was, I was running around with the trophy in my hand, trying to find my sister and, and found her backstage. She hugged me, said, congratulations. I said, but mom, where, what, why aren't you with mom? She goes, well, mom's up in the van. And uh, I said, no, she's in the front row. Did you not help her down? No, I left her in the van. I, well, some guy must have helped her down, but I don't see. So we raced out, found her. And she was there. She was in, in, still in the flesh. And she was talking to us. And she said that she made her way down so she could watch me win the contest. So, you know, she was a huge spirit for, for me and gave me the strength to, uh, to do my best right up to the very end. And she, she died just two months after that. But that was the last time she saw me play. What was her name? Well, her given name was Martha, and she liked to be called Marty, M-A-R-T-Y. It was a, right after we played today, a fellow came up. He was about 86. His name is Bob Keller. He's uh, been around these parts for a long time, and he was one of my mom's friends, and they would talk about fiddle music history and bluegrass history together. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and he's and he was so sweet, and we he remembered all those days, and and then a another fellow came up to me after the concert, and uh, his mother was one of my mom's friends, so yeah, coming here reopens uh, some of those amazing journey memories that still you know drives me to this day.
As I mentioned in part one of this podcast, Mark grew up in Seattle, and I was curious if he had performed before at the Wintergrass Music Festival, which takes place in nearby Bellevue, Washington. You know, Wintergrass was really a new thing for both of us. I mean, I've, I've, never, I've never played at Wintergrass, and I don't even know if Maggie knew much about Wintergrass. But here we are, and we, you know, the the set that we played today was sort of like an afterthought because we came because of the O'Connor Method. Uh, they were going to do some teacher training here, and we were going to participate in that. Uh, and then it occurred to me that, well, you know, you might as well have us plan your festival <laughs> since we're here. And it turns out to be like, you know, a highlight a concert set and they 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 close you know we have they, we close the festival and what a cool thing and all these players that I've um, known for a long time and 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 even more that I've taught and seen through my camps you know saw Maggie and I play it together and that was really really special so this is a big weekend and uh, so. Maggie uh, also is very passionate about the the method and the books that um, that I've been authoring, and you know we we uh, we were very excited about the potential of having an American school string playing uh, for the first time in in our history. Um, we've uh, you know the fiddlers have been out there doing their job, <laughs> you know they. They, te- they taught people like me, you know. But um, it happens here and there. No matter how big fiddling or bluegrass could ever get, it's only going to get so big uh, as far as students without something else that happens, that happens in our academic culture, that, that people insist on um, uh, changing the status quo. And... I knew that um, my musical ability probably could push that envelope some uh, somewhat, but uh, I also knew that I needed to get busy and start to organize and author materials that could challenge the systems, the the, the ones that have been in place for a long time, Such as? Uh, so like the Suzuki method, um, which has the 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 most impact on our culture for the last 50, 60 years. And I thought I could, you know, do something that um, could promote the American school of string playing with our beautiful diversity of, of uh, culture and our um, amazing amount of musical styles, uh, our creativity and improvisation that, uh, that exists within those styles and the, the tributaries and bridges that connect these styles that make this beautiful tapestry of, of musical genius. You know, I mean, a lot of people talk about the genius of Mozart, but um, what about this amazing experiment in, in America of music making that emanates from cultures from around the world, Africa, Europe, you know, the Middle East, near Asia, South America, and the Native American. And they were all participating in this musical experiment that started, you know, 400 years ago with the hoedown and, uh, and uh, created the spirituals and the blues and the 
everything since. And the violin and the fiddle was central to this musical language development. This is a story of musical genius. And I, I felt it all along. Even as a kid, I knew that this was special. It's astonishing to me that leaders of our, of our musical um, environment, and especially academic environment, still don't know this stuff. This, they don't get it. They don't, they, they don't their, I guess their curiosity uh, as a musician stops at some border or something. I mean, I'm curious about classical music. I love Beethoven. I've read all his scores. Um, his symphony scores have inspired me. I just don't understand why the music establishment stops at the gate. You know, I mean, I, as a musician, as an artist, I want to spring that gate open. You know, I want to, I want to fly through that thing. And, <laughs> and I think Mozart would have wanted that too if he would have been living in our time and probably hanging out in America. I mean, why wouldn't you have, you know? So I'm just thinking, you know, what in the heck, all these kids in America growing up, learning these, you know, two, 300 years old Baroque music stylings and without any knowledge or even access to great fiddle music, great blues, great jazz, um, and, um, and all the ragtime and the spirituals and all the stuff that, uh, that I got to learn when I was a kid that inspired me. Um, so the O'Connor method really, um, is, um, a, a, a system of, of, uh, editing our materials, um, organizing them, putting them in some kind of sequence of learning. So, uh, so a child can learn technique acquire the techniques uh, that are needed to become a proficient player, but at the same time become a real musician, an artist, someone that can create, someone that can write a tune, improvise, lead a band, come up with a new idea. Um, and, uh, and there's a way to do it. It just hasn't been organized for string playing. And so the O'Connor Method does this by uniting our solo books with my orchestra books that I've uh, also arranged and authored and allows for school programs to be able to function to where these kinds of things uh, inspire the child to be able to participate in music, um, not just as a technician or someone learning scales, but someone that can go beyond, think outside the box, become just as creative as their fellow classmates in our class where they don't have to paint by numbers and stay in the lines if they don't want to. I mean, certainly our musicians and our music students should be afforded the same type of creative, um, um, uh, I think, uh, you know, kind of access to, uh, to learning that we give um, a lot of our other kids. So the string kids, I think, have been held back. And part of um, part of my complaint is that the Suzuki system has sort of uh, doubled down on this kind of robotic, over-technical type of lesson plan that's based on repetition drills. You know, and you think about you know a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old doing these repetitions. 
uh, over and over again. Like if you had a, a child and you, and you would aspire uh, for them to be a, a, you know, an Olympic runner one day, I mean, would you have your five-year-old out there doing drills and heats for, for, for their training? You know, I mean, this is not what we do for, with children, but we do that with music, with string playing. And the, you know, I say the violin is already hard enough. Why make it torture? You know, like uh, there should be some kind of experience that the children have where they can fall in love with their violin, not as a, a, a technical endeavor, but as something that um, they see a new world through, that, that they can transport themselves to a better place through their own creative measure. And um, I think American music is perfectly suited uh, for this. And we've never had an American school of string playing formalized. We've never had it in our academic structure. We've never had the conservatory address it with strings. Yes, now we have jazz in conservatories. Wonderful. They leave out strings, though. You know, uh, um, but great for jazz. We have guitar in conservatories. Great for guitar. Well, how far has guitar come in the last 60 years? Amazing amount of distance. But at the same time, the strings, the violin, the cello are seemingly pulled backwards um, into this kind of archaic way of learning. And most of these kids will either end up auditioning for an orchestra and failing it and, um, and, uh, and quitting. And uh, we're, we're losing some of our brightest people out there that uh, who parents whose parents really cared about them and got them they did the right thing they got them the violin lesson but it just happens to be the wrong way to learn the violin for the 21st century i mean if those children really want to become a professional musician they're handicapped by their own training it's either orchestra or nothing for them they they can't they, they wouldn't be able to form an ensemble or or um put together a, a, a tune with a vocalist or, you know, or, or, or something that um, it would be typical of any fiddler or guitar player or saxophone player uh, in our, in our uh, musical environment. So the O'Connor method gives a real opportunity for uh, a string student to learn how to play the violin really well. And if they so choose, they could go on from my method uh, back over to uh, Beethoven and and uh, and Mozart, if they love that music, that'd be great. But if they want to go in the direction of bluegrass or fiddling or or jazz, that would also be great too. But this is a much better launching pad to start from the point of inspiration, love, and creativity, as well as technical ability, rather than a method that just offers you technical ability. I think it's short-sighted and it's leaving a lot of kids behind. What is it about the violin of, of all instruments? I mean, because it is a hard instrument. There's so many issues about it. Um, how naked the sound is. You know, you're out there. There's nothing under you. <laughs> there's, and you have to generate that energy the entire time to keep that sound, that tone. So why do that? What does the violin offer that no other instrument offers? 
I I like to s- sort of stand convention on its head sometimes, and I'll I'll often say this, and I and I truly mean it. I think the violin is a lot easier for children than a lot of other instruments, and there's a couple reasons for that. I remember I was a child musician, and I learned I was learning to play guitar when I was five. And talk about difficult to get your literally physically get your arms around a guitar and to be able to press six strings down a five-year-old or six-year-old's hand pressing six strings down on a guitar is almost impossible and i was that person that was trying to learn it would have been much easier for me as a six-year-old to learn the, the violin so while it's difficult for adults with our abilities and our knowledge of you know of the, and our, how how many records we've listened to and are being self-conscious. The kids are not thinking on those terms. They're excited about this, and and they can hold the violin fine. Uh, we have a real, we have a real opportunity. We we um, you know we have those little tiny violins, eight size, quarter size. The kids can hold them fine. I have a four-year-old right now daughter who's uh, taking violin lessons, playing Barlam Cabbage Down, she can hold it fine. She would not be able to hold a, a guitar. <laughs> so, or a saxophone, you know, or a trumpet, or a bassoon. So we really do have an advantage of, with the little kids, that, and they don't have the same expectations as adults do about tone and sound, and we've heard it at Sock Perlman, and like, oh my gosh, we can't, we can't sound like that, you know. They're not thinking on those terms yet. So we got we got to get them involved in a method that allows them to become little musicians and little artists. And it's not just about technique, it's that too. But we want we want to teach good technique and good posture. But it's about being um, uh, little musicians and being creative and having fun and the joy, finding the joy through music and uh, children know how to be joyful. And we should allow that to happen in the lesson plan. I concluded my interview with Mark by returning to the subject of his relationship with the violin. And that took us in the course of time to the pleasures he derives from playing before live audiences. The instrument as you've perceived it, uh, do you ever find yourself dreaming about it at night? Does it have a, like, do you sometimes take it out and it plays great and then sometimes you take it out and it, it's not going to work with you tonight, today. You know, it has a character. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, a lot of it is, for me, a psychology, too. Because um, while the violin becomes, you know, one of your best friends, sometimes it's a little nasty with you. You've got to kind of get after it. And um, I always have my best moments on stage when I play. There's times during rehearsal where I feel like, I get to a little bit of a cool place, but a lot of the magic happens for me when when your complete system is focused on the endeavor and communication. And uh, I always play better when you know somebody's listening. But I'm kind of I've sort of made myself that way over the years by becoming a professional musician. I almost need, want an audience. I don't, I don't play as well in private. Is it possible you're, in fact, even accessing some kind of energy 
Yeah. And I'd almost call it, again, for lack of better words, because these things are hard to put words to, almost a psychic energy or a dream energy in the people that this violence seems to elicit, and then it becomes collective. Yeah, I've, I feel like um, there's definitely things that I that I channel in on that um, that's even though it seems like I'm very self-involved when I play and I don't look around much, but I'm really it, for me it's it's about it's about the moment, and um, I think it a lot of things are involved. You know when we you know when we create a passage where we're really really in the groove or really in tune, and it seems extraordinary for those times. I mean that's really exciting stuff. Like I never really quite felt like that. You know. Uh, doing anything else in my life, just uh, being able to master something, even if it was for a few seconds, it just felt like all the effort was worth it to get to that, you know, those that second of uh, bliss. But um, I think uh, I think the the violin is is a magical instrument. It can, it I think it can move an audience, perhaps like no other instrument uh, we know of maybe maybe the guitar perhaps m- maybe the piano on occasion but um, the violin played really well can really um, mesmerize an audience and um, I think that's been its attraction right from the very beginning and um, I think the biggest story of today is we can move an audience with so many different approaches to the violin. It doesn't have to be Bach necessarily, although I love Bach. I love playing Bach as well. But I, it doesn't have to be something like that. It could be any number of things. It could be, like I, I did a, a transcription of Eck Robertson's Sally Gooden from 1922, and I played that in the concert today. And there was times where I was, I felt like I was almost channeling Uncle Eck Robertson, you know, like it was that, it was that moment where this was a shared energy. I, I, don't, I never felt like that when I was practicing it, but all of a sudden I'm up on stage and there's something that was different. I felt like all those people in the audience were maybe hoping I was going to channel them, you know, or something. We all, we all kind of got there together. So I feel like the violin is that communal instrument it's, it it creates community it creates interest it makes a lot of sense because it's it's history is about bringing people together you know the hoedown was created by african americans native americans european americans in the south an unlikely scenario but the birth of american music and the fiddle was right there and uh, it's bonded. So these years later, we, we should recognize the, the power of this instrument as an American instrument, not just a classical instrument, not just an instrument from Italy, but our makers here, right here. Jonathan Cooper made my violin. We, we, we're in a new era, new time, and and our educational system should reflect all the progress we've made 
and that includes um, the amazing amount of fiddlers that uh, are on in the scene now that are great musicians that know know a lot about music. Um, it reminds me of the the great era of uh, the beginning of bluegrass, and you know when you had people like Chubby Wise joining up with Bill Monroe, who was a who was basically a jazz violin player, learning bluegrass. We have a, rena- a renaissance going, I think, with uh, with our era, and now we have uh, that kind of energy that people can teach, people can share this music in new ways with with our technology. So it's an exciting time, and it's great to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. Thank you.